Lawrence Krauss is a world-renowned theoretical physicist, a man who significantly changed our view and our understanding of the cosmos. He's a fierce advocate for the public understanding of science and aims to bring it closer to the masses through the Origins podcast. Recently, he's also been pushing for much-needed societal and cultural changes. Lawrence's books have been pivotal in popularizing science and have profoundly impacted me since I first read them. And his latest book is no exception. Check out my episode from earlier this year, right here. Join us as we embark on a captivating journey to the edge of knowledge, recorded live in October 2023 at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Lawrence, how are you doing? It's great to be here. I, I, I'm, I'm really thankful for the museum and for Brian. When, when the Origins Project decided to do some events in California, uh, when the last one we did was in Orange County a, a few days ago, and I contacted Brian. I thought it'd be great to come down here. And Brian, um, because he's on the board, said, you know, I have a great place, and he arranged for this to happen. And 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 so it's, it's the first time I've been here, but it is truly an amazing place. And what a what a place to have this this joint podcast in the sense that we're doing the origins project is is uh does do public events every now and then and this is just a a wonderful venue so i want to thank you and the museum it's been it's been great and of course andy ornan who who organized it and helped set up the venue and 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 the 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 vip reception it's been a it's been a great chance to meet many of you so it's fun to be with brian here and and i hope we'll disagree and in chat uh about science and since it's his home turf, I'm going to turn it back to him for the minute. Yeah, one of the things I'm most uh, excited to talk to you about tonight uh, in our signature kind of way where we debate things, I am a what I call a practicing agnostic Jew, which we can get into what actually that means. Lawrence is a devout Bible-beating Christian, as you all know. Can't get enough of it. Uh, we'll talk about religion. We'll talk about politics, all the stuff you're not supposed to. But really, you talk science with uh, a person who has had an, uh, a considerable influence, both on my career and my thought process, but on a generation of, of young young people. And I want to start with something that, you know, you can deny paternity maybe, but um, I want you to talk about this mysterious substance, which I'm told fills the universe uh, almost without par, and it's called dark energy. And it's something that you and our friend, mutual friend, Mike Turner, uh, really invented, discovered. Let's talk about the scientific process. How do you think of this creation and the fact that it will someday rip all of our molecules apart? How do you know it won't? It probably won't do that. But by the way, I appreciate what you say. I, I was the news that you said I cast a long shadow on science because I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. But um, uh, so dark energy is the biggest mystery in, I think, in fundamental physics. It is the fact that when you take space and get rid of all the particles and all the radiation and everything and just have empty space there, it weighs something. And, and we don't know why. It is true that Mike and I had, had proposed um, that it existed. Mostly I did anyway, and I think I convinced Mike that I, I was being heretical uh, because at the time that we looked at the data and all the data of cosmology didn't agree with the our picture of cosmology, the standard model of cosmology, 
we knew, we theorists knew way before the observers, and he's an observer and I'm a, an experiment, he's an experimentalist, I'm a theorist. We'll get into the difference, and there are differences. Um, and But we theorists were virtually certain that the universe was flat. That that means it's, the, and I and the other day in Orange County, I don't think I got to explain what flat was, so I should explain here. It's not flat like a pancake. It's flat, a flat universe is just one in which the X, Y, and Z axes point in the same direction throughout all of space. If you follow them up, they keep going in straight lines. A curved universe is one that you might imagine the X, Y, and Z axes point here, up there, but somewhere in the distant part of the universe is over here, over there, and over there. And in a, in a in say, in a closed universe, if you look far enough in that direction, you'll see the back of your head. There are good theoretical reasons, and maybe we'll get to them, why we thought the universe was flat, but, but there was a big problem. The observers, being difficult people, um, did not wasn't weren't finding the universe to be flat. They, well, they weren't finding enough matter to make the universe flat because the geometry of the universe depends upon the stuff in it. And you have to have a certain amount of stuff to make a flat universe. And it wasn't the right amount of stuff within a factor of three. And then we looked at all sorts of other observations and it wasn't just, just not agreeing. And then we realized it, in order to make it all agree, you'd have to fill up the universe with another kind of energy, the energy of nothing. And that was so absurd and ridiculous. That's why I love the idea of proposing it. But more important, I did it because, and this is really important because we'll probably get to some current issues. At the forefront of science, results are often wrong, not because experimentalists are doing it. They're doing difficult work. And it's very difficult to measure things. And sometimes the first measurement is, you know, isn't quite right. And so I was convinced some of the measurements were wrong. And this would be a, a message for observers to, to, to review their data and, and, and get it right. And, and some of the observers, one I remember a guy named Saul Promuter said, well, you know, we'll prove you wrong. And, um, and it turned out, more, much to my surprise, more than anyone, that, that what we predicted was exactly right. That 70% of the energy of the universe resides in empty space. We don't know where the energy came from, why it's there, but it's there. And it's exactly the amount we predicted. And, and those guys won the Nobel Prize for the observation, which is fine. Because, uh, be, it, be, it, no, it is because the people who convince the world of things are the people who actually measure things. You know, we can talk. I can say it's flat, but it, or I can say there's dark energy, but no one's going to believe it unless the observers in some ways confirm that. And so physics is an empirical science. It's an experimental science, and, and, and it's led by experimentalists. I say that as a theorist. Um, but in any case, so it, it turned out to be right, and, it, and I was very surprised. But, but we don't know if it's constant, if it's going to stay there. Brian said it's going to tear us apart. O only, see, if the dark energy is there, one of two things can happen. It could just stay there, which is my bet, by the way. Just stay there, not change. And then it would be something that's akin to something Einstein invented called a cosmological constant, a fundamental lowest energy state of the universe. Or it could get, it could go away one day. And we talk about how that's happened earlier in the history of the universe, something very much like it. Or it could increase. Now, if it increases, then dark energy has this weird property that it's gravitationally repulsive. All of you who studied physics know that gravity sucks, okay? It always pulls, pulls in. If you put energy in empty space, it blows, okay? And it causes the expansion of the universe to 
to ex accelerate. And that's what the observers uh, saw and others looking at supernovae first measured. But if it's constant, it causes the universe to accelerate. But it really only impacts on the evolution of the universe on the largest scales. That's why we never observed it before. You have to look at the motion of distant galaxies. But if it's increasing, its effect becomes more and more important on smaller and smaller scales. So right now it's pulling apart galaxies. The galaxies aren't being pulled apart. They're, our galaxy is the same size and it's not growing due to even due to the expansion of the universe. But if the dark energy increases, eventually that repulsive force will blow apart the galaxy. And then if it keeps increasing, it'll, it'll blow apart the solar system. And then it'll blow apart planets. And then it'll eventually blow apart atoms and it eventually will blow apart space itself. It's called the Big Rip. I call, a, a former student you know, in, invented the name. It's a nice name. I think there's no, I would say there's no theoretical reason to expect that at all. There's no theory that suggests that that dark energy will increase. It's a beautiful, it's a cute thing that the, you know, captured a lot of people's imagination, but it's not likely. The likelihood is it either it's staying the same or quite possibly it may not be a fundamental energy of empty space. It, there may be somehow being energy being stored in empty space and it may go away and that would change everything, including our lot, well, including life. So anyway, that's a long answer. This won't happen for several billion or perhaps trillion years, so keep paying your tax. Well, actually, show up tomorrow now. The interesting thing is we don't know because we don't understand it. It could happen tomorrow. The great thing about it is if it happens, we won't know it. until We won't know it until it hits us and we won't be there afterwards. The effect will happen at the speed of light. And so we will be go away and before we even knew we got hit. So it doesn't matter. Enjoy life. Have it, you know, that's like that song says. Saturday night. When you think about the differences between observers, experimentalists, theorists, I, I find like a lot of my students don't really comprehend the subtleties between those. But I, I think one thing is, you know, right over there, they put up a great image of Earth's nearest neighbor, the moon. And that's a view that humanity never had for thousands of years until some Dutch guy took his spectacles and broke them in two. And put one in front of the other, and then Galileo, or my hero at least, I'm sure you're also yeah, a big hero. to him you know for that. intellectual debt, he turned it to the moon. And no one had ever done that before. They were looked up with a telescope until Galileo, essentially. And they were saw, looking in people's windows before that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay, well, anyway, yeah, go on. I mean, my neighbor was yeah. quite, quite attractive. Anyway, looking at the moon, even now, you can see it. You can use something built by a human being. You can observe something. Then you can take that observation and use it to test a hypothesis. One hypothesis that Galileo tested was whether or not that ball was actually perfectly smooth and crystalline and ideal in its form. And when he saw it wasn't, that it had mountains and it had valleys and it had holes in it and all sorts of crazy stuff, he could use that to formulate a hypothesis. And he said famously, I love this quote, he said, a scientist should measure what is measurable and then make measurable what is not yet so. I've always been curious, what do you think is the minimum amount of knowledge uh, that A, an educated lay person, and some of you are brilliant lay people, but what do you think an educated lay person should know about science? And two, what should a theoretician, like those that you train, know versus, say, an experimentalist, such as someone in my laboratory building telescopes? Now, let, let, me, let me preface this by saying physics, being the most advanced of the sciences in some ways, is probably is is one of the is not the only science but one of the only sciences where where it's so complicated in there's so much intellectual baggage that it has in most areas of physics 
separated into theorists and experimentalists because what you need to do to be a good experimentalist in terms of the cutting edge technology that you have to master requires a great deal of time. And similarly, the mathematical baggage that you need to, to understand fundamental science and physics is also extreme. So you don't see theorists and experimentalists. The last, in my opinion, the last great theorist experimentalist was Enrico Fermi who, who, at University of Chicago. If you saw, if you saw that movie uh, Oppen uh, Oppenheimer, you would have seen Fermi. He's a huge hero of mine. Um, and he, he, was, he was a theorist, in fact, uh, um, and, and, and an experimentalist equally well. And he, he, um, he proposed uh, the fundamental theory, one of the fundamental theories that later ended up describing one of the forces of nature and then did the experiments on it and won the Nobel Prize, I think, for his experiments. But um, anyway, it, that was the last time you could sort of do that. So it's sort of separated. In terms of the, the fundamental stuff that people should know, I really think that what we really need to teach is not the stuff that you should know, but the process by which you know it. And that's the one thing that I think is most important for people to carry on. You know, the details of science are fascinating for me and you. And I think for most people, once they realize it's science, you know, a lot of people don't realize they're interested in science because they don't know it's science. That's one of the reasons I wrote the Star Trek book. Okay. Because, you know, I go to a party and you say, I'm a physicist. And they go, how about those Yankees or something? And then, uh, and then I'd say, you know, talk about time travel or warp drive. And, and people are fascinated. But so that's great. And, this, and, and it really is amazing. And I guess people should, of course, the basic things people should understand about the world is that there was a big bang. The universe is expanding. Evolution happened. Basic stuff like that. But more important, the process by which we get that information, the process by which we test it, because that's the tool. Those are the tools that people will carry with them in all of the areas, aspects of life. And if we just used the scientific method, then politics and well, even religion, but politics would be would be more sensible and more rational because people would test the ideas of politicians and say, are they telling the truth? But politicians might also develop policies based on empirical evidence and and also be able to change their minds. Do a policy. It's not working. We're going to change our minds. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So I think that's the kind of thing that, that we really need to teach. I wish... Um, as a, as a theorist, I've, of course, come to appreciate experimentalists m much more than I did when I was a, a, a student. Theorists, you know, like Oppenheimer, right? It, it's the sexy stuff. It's Einstein and everyone. So, so somehow theorists have captured people's imaginations and the, the tinkerers, if you wish, aren't usually the heroes of the movies, but they're the heroes of science. And I kind of wish I'd, I'd, I'd as a student, appreciated that. I... Oh, more. I actually did a degree in mathematics and a degree in physics. And I did that for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons was so I could get out of the laboratory requirement in physics. Okay. And so, uh, but, but over time, of course, I've come to appreciate that. And, and as a theorist, actually, I used to be a very mathematical theorist when I was a student, a graduate student. And then a, a friend of mine who, uh, you know, Sheldon Glashow, who won the Nobel Prize, I remember when I was a student, he once said to me, there's formalism and there's physics, and you have to know the difference. And, and from that time on, I've always, in my physics, tried to tie it to things you can measure and see. And that's become fundamental to me, and to try and understand what observers can do and experimentalists can do. And I, in my life, I've tried to propose new experiments because it's fascinating to learn about new technologies because every time 
we open a new window on the universe, we're surprised. So I think, I think if people realize the significance of that, that would be very important. But it's not the facts. It's that it's the process, it's the tools. And I do think everyone should, the problem with, you know this, when, if you're in a physics lab, it's just like first year physics is boring in all, anyway, it's, thing, it's, it's things sliding down inclined planes. It's, uh, but it, experimentally, it's also these recipe things. You know, here's the stuff and you do this. And it, it's not, it, it would be great if we could design experiments that people could discover, not know what the answer was gonna be, discover, because that's really, when you're playing, that's what's really, really fun. I have a special favor to ask you. YouTube Analytics tells me that of the 30,000 plus of you that viewed my previous chat with Lawrence for his book, The Edge of Knowledge, only one third of the viewers actually subscribe to the channel. I'd really appreciate it if you consider subscribing to this channel. Doing so helps me get great guests and helps me deliver the great content that you've come to expect from this channel. Thanks so much for helping me help you. Now back to my live chat with Lawrence Krauss. But I think, you know, sometimes you'll hate this phrase, Lawrence, I know, but I think we should teach the controversy. And by that, I don't mean what you're thinking about, but I mean, you just mentioned this boring rolling down an inclined plane. Well, you know who came up with the formalism for that. It's my hero. We already mentioned him, Galileo. Yeah. It was his final book. He was discussing relativity. He was discussing how things in relative motion cannot determine who is truly moving and who is stationary. If you're a fish in the ocean and next to a boat and the boat has an aquarium on it and there's a twin fish of yours and they're swimming, you cannot tell relative motion who is moving. He also used a genius trick by using this inclined plane that we call it to slow the force of gravity. Back then, they didn't have clocks. You couldn't measure things. You had your pulse. You had an hourglass. You, you, you use this pulse. And I, you know, you, have you been to Florence? Have you? I've been. I've not only been to Florence. I had a. I had a conference. Hosted a conference in his prison house. And that's the controversy. Because I want to say. No, but anyway, I talk, like that. I like the museum there. The, the museum is. Everyone beautiful. goes to the art museum in Florence, but go to the museum of science in Florence. They the have Galileo the inclined plane there. Yeah. The little telescope, which you just cannot see how he did anything. And I think they have his finger. Uh, that's in a different museum, but yes, it's his middle middle finger. I was about to do it, but I won't do it. Uh, just to that plane making noise overhead. But what I want to say is, imagine you taught people this, that Galileo's manuscript was smuggled out under penalty of death. That that manuscript that we talk about, if we told that to freshmen and, you know, and sophomores when we teach the first-year students, I think it would make it more engaging. I think we do a terrible job. We've been given the greatest script ever made. I mean, the greatest story ever told is your book, right? But the greatest script ever handed or bestowed upon humanity is the story of science. And we are the worst actors on any stage imaginable, I feel. We need to do a better uh, job. I, I think you speak for yourself. No, I'm yeah. just joking. But um, the... Uh, well, uh, everything I know, uh, the, I the, No, actually, I agree with you. I actually require my students, especially the non-science students, to read Galileo. It, I always, uh, you know, would photocopy because he doesn't have the copyright anymore anyway. I'd, I'd photocopy uh, parts of the book and um, and I because it read I've I've often said this it's we force these students to read like James Joyce but Galileo is easier to read and funnier and and poetic and so I I really uh, I I'm a huge fan of Galileo's and and I do think it'd be great for students to read because you see how these things which see as you say seem boring now how how he was thinking and and seeing the thought process and when is he was what wrong. I think people really like when to he do. was wrong too he was great. Scientists, great women, great men make great mistakes. Yeah. Brilliant blunders, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no. So it, it's, uh, but you're absolutely right. The reason we do inclined planes is because 
it's too hard to, when you drop something, it travels, it accelerates so fast. That's why Aristotle thought, you know, things immediately got their final velocity. And he said, well, if I do it on a climb plane, things will, it'll slow things down, but I can watch them accelerate. And, and, um, and it was the basis of modern science. And, and, uh, and yeah, he's, 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 at the top. For I wonder if there will be new, not only new teachers for, for uh, upcoming students, but, but new, new students and new, and new ways of thinking. And I'm thinking particularly of, of large language models of artificial intelligence. You talk about this in your latest book, The Edge of Knowledge, hold it up so people can go to Amazon, you know, when they're not getting my mm -hmm. book. Yeah. Yeah. Those, I know you were, your book plug, is there somewhere. Dueling you plugs. can hold up your book we'll in a second. We'll see. We'll get um, there. And, and that is artificial intelligence. And I wonder I wonder how what, how you react to this statement. When I uh, think of what Gal uh, what Einstein, who was a successor to Galileo in many many ways, uh, not like that prick Newton, who you've written about as a as a real juror, and I learned that uh, from your writing. But good old Albert, uh, he said that he had his happiest experience, his happiest fun ever, was that somebody in free fall would experience no gravitational force. And that led him to construct the Einstein equivalence principle and everything in GR follows from that. But you know, what people don't realize is that he said that, but he said that I mean, the only time his heart ever had palpitations, and this is what's important. I mean, I think Einstein was sort of working this vacuum. They all think, you know, theoretists are alone at night, just coming up with things. But he was tied to observation and experiment. And, and the moment that he wrote down this beautiful theory, but that didn't give him palpitations, even though it was beautiful. And he once said, "If he knew it could be wrong because it was so beautiful. But although most theorists say that about their own work and most of them are wrong. But, um, but he said, when, when he did the calculation for general relativity and discovered something called the perihelion of Mercury, Mercury's orbit sort of rotates very slowly, a few seconds of arc per century. But it would, no one could understand that Newton's laws didn't give it. And he did the calculation in general relativity, and it came up with the exact number that people had observed. That's when he said he had heart palpitations and almost fainted. He, that's, it was realizing that he, had, he you know, it agreed with observation. And that, so n physics isn't done in this vacuum. It depends on the observations of the time. Very, very rarely theorists lead, but, but uh, uh, you know, even Einstein wasn't, was certainly a product of his time. And his, his earlier theory of special relativity, People, I, I hate the way it's taught in schools, and, and, and I've written in my books of different ways of t teaching it. Everyone says, okay, the speed of light is a constant. In fact, I got asked by someone the other day in Orange County, what if, you know, what, if the, what if we find the speed of light isn't constant or something? He didn't just say, oh, the speed of light is constant, and therefore the world is crazy. What he realized was two things. In fact, it's good you mentioned Galileo. Galileo told us just what you just said, Galilean relativity. If you're on a plane and the windows are closed, and you throw up a ball, you don't know you're moving. We don't know, we think we're standing still, but we're moving at 30 kilometers per second around the sun. We feel like we're standing still because Galileo told us there's no experiment you can do that will tell if you're moving or standing still, if you're moving at a constant velocity or standing still. I say you're moving, you say I'm moving, it doesn't matter. That's Galilean relativity, it's true, it's been tested. James Clerk Maxwell developed electromagnetism, this theory of electromagnetism, and for reasons I won't go into right now, but I could, but I'm not going to. It turns out the theory of electromagnetism is, a is our prototypical, most beautiful theory we have in physics almost. It was inconsistent with Galileo. You couldn't have Maxwell and Galileo at the same time. And it was thinking about that that forced him to the theory of relativity. The only way to make Galileo and Maxwell consistent 
was to do crazy things to space and time. So he was driven to it by thinking about the observations of his time. So if, if, Max, if Einstein had been born, you know, Maxwell was like 50 years before Einstein. If, if he'd been born 80 years earlier, he wouldn't have been Einstein. One of my favorite anecdotes about Einstein is that he was offered the presidency of Israel. Uh -huh. And can you imagine what kind of a career he could have had if he was the president of Israel? He could have been famous. <laughs> Uh, but I, I wanted to make one point about this and get your reaction to it. So here's Einstein. He's saying you're free fall. You can't feel this uh, gravitational force that you're in motion. And it was this delightful, visceral experience that he had. How can my iPhone running ChatGPT, as it often is, how can it experience heart palpitations? How can it have a happiest thought? How can it visualize the sensation of free fall? Uh, what I'm getting at can we have, and I asked this of your friend Noam Chomsky when he was up, you know, can you have creativity of a physical variety that without embodiment? Well, no, in fact, again, I was talking about this the other day. I, I think it's quite likely, and I talk about it in the new book, I, I think it's quite likely that, that systems, AI systems, if they ever could be self-aware and conscious, will not be able to do it unless they have feelings, and feelings will require uh, sensors that can sense the outside world and the internal state of the system. That's what, what's developed in us, the homeostatic system. We can set, started sensing pain and pleasure, but beyond that, we, we sense the world. And then those physical feelings turn into emotional feelings. And I think it's quite likely that you won't see a, a, a chat GPT or a static regurgitational system that can't sense the world. Now, can you sense the world through the internet? Maybe at some level, but, uh, but I do think that that, that consciousness, that self-awareness requires that, that, that connection to the world. The interesting question is whether it'll become an emotional connection or not. And, and who knows? Because Can we don't really know. Can you have emotions without visceral, you know, without sensors or replication of physical sensation? Can I have what? Can you have emotions? Are emotions independent? Who knows? I mean, that's the point. If you choose between one or the other, emotions or visceral sensations, what well, would you choose? Well, you know, who knows? I mean, it's, it, we do know that amoebas don't have, you know, don't feel no, good Stephen or bad. Hawking, you know, but but as I was saying, I, I, I debate this, you know, with some neuroscientists, M my dog, and I was just actually, tonight there's a podcast dropping with Robert Sapolsky on our, our podcast from his new book about free will. Um, and, and Sapolsky agrees with me, our dogs, you know, have emotions and feel bad and good. I'm convinced of it. And, and not just Levi, but- I'm not sure my cat does, but my dog does. <laughs> Well, who knows what cats are thinking? They're yeah, bigger, I know. I mean, you know, the cats us, right? are cats are are, are in, in, yeah. You, you can't tell what cats are thinking. So, what if you are a beginning graduate student right now, or a smart undergraduate? There's some here tonight, and there's even some, you know, pre-freshmen yeah, over there. Yeah, they're, they're the, I was the talking to them. Over there. The youngster, the future is right there. What what excites you about science nowadays? You were starting off. Uh, you, somebody asked you, what would you do? A twenty-year-old sort of getting into science brilliant, smart, whatever, has the gifts, privilege, whatever. What do you advise them to do? Well, you know, the, of course, I should I'd advise them to do what they like to do, which is the first thing, because they're not going to be good at TikTok unless they enjoy alcohol. it. But but one, thing is that I, one of the things I would tell them to think about, which I unfortunately, well, I did what I did, but when I was growing up, I my mother wanted me to be a doctor, of course, and I thought I was going to be a doctor, and I took biology in high school. And I dropped it after two weeks because we dissected frogs and memorized the parts of frogs. Wait, wait a second. Who the hell? Jewish mother wanted you to be a doctor? 
not only does she want me to be a doctor, I think I've told this story. I, when I got my first job at Harvard, which was the best job in the country at the time, um, my mother phoned up my, my first wife at the time that day when I was out of there and said, he can still become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it and uh, anyway, she was convinced for a long time. But um, anyway, so I, I went into biology class and it was memorizing the parts of a frog. And I hate mem. I, the reason I like physics is you don't have to memorize anything in principle. And, and so I, I, I feel cheated in a way because, of course, DNA had been discovered. You know, I was a child of this, at that age in the 60s and DNA had been discovered a decade earlier. But of course, in high school, it usually takes 20 to 30 years to get into the books. And I didn't realize what an incredibly exciting field it is. So nowadays, in fact, when I, when I was doing my PhD, I did it at MIT, as one does, I think, and as one I hope one does, I got discouraged many times. And I think students should get discouraged. If they're not getting discouraged, then they're not really pushing the edge of the envelope. And I thought of doing, and my mother would have been thrilled, I thought of doing a joint MD-PhD, which you could do at Harvard, MIT. And so I went to, uh, the, the cousin of a friend of mine who was the chair of cell biology, I, wanted to, I was going to do biophysics. You know, I liked fundamental physics, but I was getting so discouraged. So I went to see him, and this was in 1980, 81, so maybe late 70s, early 80s. And, and I said to him, you know, should I do this? And he said, don't do biophysics. And I said, why? And he said, because it's not of interest to biologists and it's not of interest to physicists. That was true in 1979, but now it's really one of the most exciting forefront areas of physics because... Biology is becoming an area where physicists are learning to study physical processes. And of course, the tools of physics are being used in biology. So it's an incredibly exciting area. So I would not, I would say, you know, and of course, genetics and genomics and combinatorics and genetics and along with AI are an incredibly exciting area. And, and the disciplines of the 19th century disciplines are disappearing. So the interface between physics and biology is disappearing. And, and so I would argue that there's a whole spectrum from biology to fundamental physics and in, in the kind of physics that, if you ask me what are the sort of growth areas, one is manipulating quantum systems. We can manipulate quantum systems like we could never do before. Some of it involves quantum computers, some of it involves making new materials that might do just what you wanted to do. Um, of course, astrophysics is a, and cosmology are growth areas because we have all these new tools. Ultimately though, I think what, you know, I would come back and say what well, I would say try a bunch of things. When students ask me where they should go to graduate school, I often say go to a school that has a lot of different programs so you can see what you might like. And it's a, I often say it's more important who you work with than what you work on because your advisor and you develop a tight relationship. Since we're in the Air and Space Museum, the best one in the world, uh, I want to uh, run a topic by you. There's something called the Von Karman line, which is loosely defined People are here more expert than me, but it's loosely defined as a boundary between space and, yeah. and the Earth's atmosphere. And it seems to me that, you know, kind of the, the most pressing problems that, that are uh, being approached by physicists, and you worked on some of these, all happen below the von Karman line. And I'm talking about nuclear war. I'm talking about uh, pandemics that spread through atmospheric transmission and, uh, and climate change and climate change. So you've written books on at least two of the three of these things. I await your biophysics uh, book, which is undoubtedly being worked on as we speak. But but of these things, can you rank them? Or is, is what you were, I should say, the the uh, chairman of the board of atomic science, of the Bolton of atomic scientists, which is 
one of the foremost agencies founded by Oppenheimer and Einstein. So I was very honored to have the, and, the same uh, position as them. Yeah. What keeps you up at night? I mean, I often say, you know, the problem with physics is that we saved the world. You know, we we created the atomic bomb, but that, that's been that's not clear of it. Einstein deeply regretted it. Oppenheimer had some regrets. It's not really clear exactly what he regretted. Uh, you and Shelley Glashow have written about this pandemics. Science has made the world a better place. To deny that, I think, is ridiculous. People in this audience are alive who would not be alive to be here 100 years ago if it weren't for science. And more people eat and are, are, are able to survive a, a, and live a higher quality of life because of science. We can do amazing things. We can communicate around the world. We can, we can experience things we could never experience. Someone with a, with a phone in a, even a poor village and in Africa, experienced parts of the world they never could experience before, where most people in the world never, for most of human history, never walked more than 10 kilometers from where they lived. Yeah, and of course, along with technology can come problems. And how we address that is, a, is unfortunately not a scientific question, it's a political question. So the politics of dealing with these questions is much harder than the scientific ones. The technologies of dealing with climate change are much easier to consider than the politics of implementing them. I never rank things, um, and, and all of those things um, concern me. I think nuclear war is still, in my mind, the, the, the most immediate, and, and it, it gets poor, well, maybe now it's not, but it, it, it amazes me that people sort of, um, as you know, I, or may know, you know, I, I wrote, I've written for lots of newspapers over the years, and every time I wrote an article about nuclear war or nuclear weapons. It had the least response of any of any of the pieces I wrote. I think people don't want to think about it, but people don't realize that there are it right now a thou, at least a thousand warheads in the United States and Russia that are on trigger hair alert, but ready to be launched if a perceived signal of another launch is perceived, and 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 that also. As people did learn when, when that guy was president a few years ago, the command and control infrastructure of this country is such the only person who can issue a launch for uh, order to launch a global is the president. And no other organization, no, it doesn't have to go by anyone else. There's no other individual who can who could override that unless they decide the president's crazy. But in the actual organization, there's no there's no uh, you know no other people are going to say hold on. So I do think it's amazing. It's amazing that we've been around for 70 some odd years without the use of nuclear weapons and maybe mutually assured destruction is, is part of the reason, but it's a, it's a problem and it's a problem we could address, but it's a political problem. But you know, saying that scientists create the problem, you know, Steve Pinker had a great analogy. He said, it's like, it's like blaming architects for Dachau. You know, you had to have architects to design the concentration camps. Is, is, is our concentration camps a necessary product of architecture? No. And so I think, I think it's really, you have to think about it carefully before you point those fingers. Before, I want to ask you a question though, but for a second, you, you asked me um, what people should know. What do you think people should, what, as an experimentalist, do you think people should, you know, what do you think people should know in, 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 in science, in school? I mean, I think for me, the most important things uh, that that people should have as a scientist, first of all, and I'll speak to that first, is humility. But I don't think you can only have humility. I think you need a little bit of, I call it swagger, 
maybe it's arrogance, that you can actually attempt to take on problems that even Einstein was unable to solve. And hopefully, you know, maybe even people in this room can approach and solve it. And it's not an exclusive sect of a high priesthood that can't be approached except by the ordained uh, members of a certain sect. Uh, but I also think that we should also not fool ourselves. We're mostly wrong. I mean, it's amazing how much we've been able to do, you know, to come in, uh, in a few decades to, you know, from the first transistor. If you look at the first transistor invented in 1956, the first practical transistor, Shockley, Bardeen, et cetera. Uh, it looks like uh, the following thing. Go and get some bazooka bubblegum, chew it up, and go down to the dry cleaner and get a wire hanger and stick it together on a piece of rock. And that's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. And now each and every one of you has 14 billion of them in your pocket right now. Except for maybe the kids, but maybe, you know, maybe they even do now. They probably I don't do. My kids and they know how to use it better than you do, actually. That's probably. right. When I, I first got worried about technology when... One of my kids was looking at me and I was just staring into her beautiful eyes as only a three-year-old could, could have this perfect, innocent face. And, and then she reached up to touch me and I was welling up to tears. And then, and then she tried to swipe and, and you know, change, the, change my image. Uh, but, but I think that we should know that you know, you need to be, we need to be humble. We're often wrong, uh, but the progress gets made you know, exponentially. And we just are not capable of thinking with our lin linear, limited brains of the pace of change. And I think that is the hardest thing. I think scientists, the public should know that a good scientist should often say, as your tutor, as your mentor, Richard Feynman said, you know, science is the belief in the ignorance of experts, not the knowledge, not the wisdom, but the ignorance that actually Lawrence wouldn't have been able to create this concept of dark energy had someone gotten to it first or been right that there actually is no such thing as dark energy. So you doubted that person, it was Einstein at one point, and you proved that wrong, or you conjecture that he indeed may be wrong. And I think that's incredibly powerful that you have to realize science is done by people and human beings, despite the contrary, right? Yeah, and I, you know, the first, I said it the other day, the first three words in the book are the most important words in science are, I don't know. They, but, but actually what we really should get across, you've made a good point, most ideas are wrong. Most experiments are wrong when they're first done, and that's okay. The press never do gets that. I, I, I was castigating the press the, the other day not because they all, you know, someone gets an absurd result, and their university press office sends it out. And then simply because most papers don't have enough money to have science reporters anymore, the science reporters just take the press release and publish it, and it's nonsense. And you read it as a scientist, and you know it's nonsense. And then... And then it's wrong, but no one ever writes that story later on. They just show another result that disagrees with it, and it gives people the idea that science is, is faddish. If you weren't wrong most of the time, anyone could do science. I mean, that's... And but, it's but, a but process... anyone can do science, right? Well, I mean, it shouldn't be this exclusive thing that's only populated by uh, Einstein. And it doesn't mean that you guys can all go out there... You know, I, I, Einstein says a lot of things, right? One of the things he says was, imagination is more important than knowledge. But, you know, I don't know about you when I go to my, you know gastroenterologist. I don't want to say, I'm going to try knowledge. this new procedure I've been waiting to try. Yeah. Would you mind if I imaginated on? No. But but I do think it is it is important to have, uh, we don't want, uh, people mistake this. They, they everybody, have you heard famously uh, Eisenhower's farewell address where he warned about the dangers of a, what did he talk about? He talked the about military industrial complex. Military combat. industrial complex. That very same farewell speech, he warned about the dangers of a technological scientific elite that would do things to promote their own interests and keep it shielded. And I often say, 
that you and I, as every scientist who's paid by the public, has a moral obligation to share what he or she does. Not to be professional communicators like, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or, you know, Michio Kaku or whoever you like, uh, Jan 11 or somebody, but, but, but who should give back to some proportion what they receive from the public. You know, look, I, I've spent a lot of my life explaining science and I, and I, and I enjoy doing it. And I, I actually think what young science, because the young people who want to do what I'm doing say, say, how, do, how, do, how can I do what you're doing? And I always say to them, do good science. If you're a young scientist and you're a good scientist, what you should do is spend your time on science. Now, if you're interested in, in reaching the public and explaining things, the more science you do, the better, more opportunities you'll have to then reach out. But, but I think most scientists actually do want to, but feel uncomfortable. It's very, the first time you, you talk out, academia is a very safe environment. People that pretend it isn't, but it is. It's an ultimately self-invasive, it's the safest environment. And so when you go out in the public, it can be terrifying. And I understand that. And so I don't think everyone should be, in fact, I remember when the National Science Foundation once had some requirement, I, when I was chair of CASE, where you went, um, young faculty have come in, they'd get, apply for these awards from the National Science Foundation, and they'd, they'd have to have a part of their plan, which was an outreach plan. Now, I'm a big believer in outreach, but this was nonsense because these got, people were postdocs. They'd never been involved in outreach. They, did, they were really interested in doing their work, and they'd come up with these cockamamie plans, none of which ever happened. And, and I think forcing them to do that is crazy. There are people who are talented at it and naturally like to do it like anything else and will do a good job. But there are, most, there are many of my colleagues I would far prefer not have a, a, the public would be better off if they didn't hear them. So we talked about a lot of things, uh, a few more minutes the two of us can chat about. Um, prerequisite for most podcasts, talk about I, uh, but also talk about something that has those two letters AI and that's aliens. I haven't talked to you about this very much. No. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do an event in New York on, on December 1st. Not debating, because I stopped debating UFO people, but I'm having a dialogue with a guy named Nick Pope, who's, uh, who was the MI6, British guy who, who looked at- Nick Pope looked is, at, it, Yeah, he looked at uh, unidentified objects, and so- Wasn't he the inspiration we're gonna have that for discussion, some of the X-Files or something? Yeah, anyway, what was that? I think he was an uh, inspiration, allegedly, for somebody in the X-Files, uh, Mulder or Scully. Well, I mean, I may have been Mulder, Mulder or Scully. I hope it, was, hope it was Scully and not Mulder, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. So. One thing that's always bemused me, maybe, is the fact that the public's fascination did sort of start to, you know, initiate around the time of the atomic bomb program, uh, right after, and it was in the same part of the country. Roswell is not far from Alamogordo and from uh, Los Alamos. So what do you make of this recent resurgence? Um, give it, uh, what do you make of the testimony and the, and the, and, and one of my friends is here tonight, a fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy who I uh, did a podcast with another fighter pilot who, who claims to have encountered uh, certain things or have eyewitness reports about that. But what do you make of all this? Is it important? Well, is it just I'll, funny? I'll tell you is what Simon said, and I've always subscribed to this. He said, I think, you know, uh, UFOs are aliens, it, UFOs being attributed to aliens. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. So you see something up in the sky, you don't know what it is, it's immediately aliens. Okay? Now, uh, let me give two aspects of that. What Feynman said is, I think UFOs, are more likely, and I the other day I was explaining to the audience that physicists say more likely or less likely, we don't, but UFOs are much more likely due to the known irrationality of humans rather than the unknown rationality of aliens. And he said that because 
if you think about it, and I guess one of my books, I think beyond Star Trek, I talked about this a great length, almost anything you can think of, regardless of how absurd it may seem as an explanation of what people may see out there is more likely than it's, it's aliens coming here to, to, to Earth. So almost anything you can think of is more likely. The laws of physics are such, the known laws of physics, forget the unknown laws of physics, the known laws of physics put constraints that make it so unlikely that anything you can think of, it's like the magic bullet in the Kennedy assassination, anything is more likely than it, that it's aliens. And I, the way I, I like to think of it this way, to, to come for an alien spaceship powered by fuel inside the spaceship, to come here from a distant star at nearest light speed would require harnessing essentially the power output of a star. I have a hard time thinking they come all the way here to abduct patients of some Harvard psychiatrist and do kinky experiments on them. I mean, it just seems like a big waste of time to me. So it's almost eight o'clock. Um, yeah, let me ask you one question. It's almost eight o'clock. We should end. I do want to ask you one question, an experimental question, because you got to ask me a bunch here. But I did want to say, what experimentally, in, and it gives you a chance to maybe talk about your own work too, but what experimentally do you think is the next, what technology is going to be most useful in, in your area of physics or in physics in general that you're aware of? Yeah. So, you know, I'm an experimental cosmologist, which means I build universes in the laboratory. No, I don't build universes. We build telescopes that have technology to do it like Galileo did with the telescope to reveal things deeper and farther and uh, more exotic than what we could perceive close to home. And the project that I'm privileged to be leading is called the Simons Observatory, which is a $100 million plus experiment in the high Atacama Desert of Chile, where we are going to attempt to be the first instrument to do something that's never been done before, which is to measure the actual spark that ignited the Big Bang. And it shares some properties in common with dark energy uh, that Lawrence mentioned earlier, uh, but it could provide a whole host of cosmic observables that would answer a lot of questions that cosmologists and lay people have had. And one of my philosophies as, a, as, a, as an advisor to my students is reach, you know, reach for the stars, as Casey Kasem said, but keep your feet on the ground. And, and that to me means uh, do something really ambitious, like measure what actually banged, who banged, she banged. No, no, I don't know if she banged. Uh, but but <laughs> let's keep it. You know, yeah, we'll keep it clean. PG. Uh, it's okay. her, 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 um, uh, famous pop song. Uh, but the question is, is there something safe that you also get no matter what? And for us, that's measuring the mass of these ghostly particles called neutrinos that we've known about for a hundred years. This is neat, but I would like you. But what I really would like you to do, because is these are these, see now people say this is great, but why don't you say how you're going to do it? I think that's that's really neat because you know. It, what technology, you know, I know, but I think it's worth explaining what you're, what the Simons Observatory. So I'll do, I'll do a little demo here. So I brought a handy dandy flashlight, which you can hopefully see in the back. I won't blind you. It has a blinding mode, which is kind of cool. If Lawrence gets out of hand, I'll blast, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to blast you. So if you have a light source, you can use that light source to illuminate everything, not only about where the light source itself was created, but everything it encounters along the way. Here it's my finger, or here it's this uh, vodka Coke, no, no, it's just plain Coke. Um, and, and so you can learn about it by, by knowing something about the source of light and its, and its primitive state and then how it has been transformed by the medium, the material along its path, if you can detect it. So we build the most sensitive detectors ever made that can see literally a, this flashlight on the moon in, in appropriate units. 
uh, from here in on the planet Earth. We don't have to launch a satellite. It's not like the Webb telescope. It's much much less expensive, although pretty expensive. And we cool down these ultra-sensitive detectors instead of like your eye, Galileo's eye, looking through a telescope. We look through telescopes with very, very sensitive, highly sophisticated quantum devices called superconducting bolometers. And we build those here in San Diego. We ship them down to Chile. They just took their first astronomical image of the moon. And if you saw it, you'd be hardly impressed because it just looks like almost like a, uh, like a bell curve, and that's about it. But that's the first wispy indications that we are on the right track to actually unveil both the properties of the extremely early universe and then the late universe, neutrinos, exotic particles, forces, fields, energy, and matter. And what's really fun is we get paid to really, not to prove people like Lawrence right, but to actually prove everybody else wrong, perhaps. And then the last woman or man standing, that theory is the one that for a provisional period of time is entitled to enjoy some attention until some other theory comes along and experiment to supplant it. So it's, to me, it's the most exciting time to be. There's many other telescopes, the Vera Rubin, Nancy Grace observatories, these are space and ground. Yeah, I mean, I, as a theorist, I, I mean, and this would happen, as I say, well after I graduated. But the other thing that's worth important saying to the students and everyone else too, is I, I certainly learned a lot more physics after I got my PhD than I did before. And I learned a lot about experimental physics because to me it fascinates me. And I remember before you were even a student at Case, uh, talking about the importance of bolometers and, and we proposed bolometers to look for dark matter. And it was amazing to me to see what you could do with you know superconducting technology and bolometers. But by the same token, that's why I'm a theorist because that was 40 years ago. Yeah. And then all the experiments have to work for 40 years and I just have to write the paper in <laughs> 1985 and I can do go do something else. So thank you, Lauren. Thanks for watching part one of my very special conversation with Lawrence Krauss. After our conversation concluded at the San Diego Air and Space Museum, we did a wonderful Q&A session with the hundred or so members of the audience. But to get access to that, you'll need to subscribe to my mailing list at briankeating.com. You'll also be eligible to enter a drawing to win a real piece of four billion year old space schmutz, a meteorite, a real piece of our early solar system's history. And if you have an EDU email address, you automatically win. So to get one, if you have an EDU address, go to briankeating.com edu and enter your email to win a real chunk of our early solar system. Looking forward to seeing you in the Q&A session.